Good morning, everybody. Doing okay? There's a long pause there at the end, or I just awkwardly stand up here and no, don't know what to do with my hands, you know. So, um, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. If you didn't notice, someone bought me a, a Pepsi and brought it to me last night at the five. If you if you don't know why that's a big deal, I made two cultural mistakes this week on um, Facebook in the same post. The first cultural mistake I made in the South was saying that I prefer Pepsi to Coke. I think it's better. And then the second thing I, I did that was a cultural mistake is I called it soda. Because in the South, there is this weird telepathic ability that Southerners have to where when you say Coke, that means everything. But the waitress instantly knows what that is. So they're like, I'll get your Sprite. And I'm like, how did, how did that happen? Like, how did she know that you didn't actually mean Coca-Cola, you meant 7-Up or whatever the case may be, right? So that's just strange. So um, anyways, um, I got on Facebook about 30 minutes after I did that. I was in my garage messing with one of my cars, and um, I just pulled up Facebook for a minute, probably to look at other old cars, and happened to see that I had lost three friends in the process <laughs> of posting about Pepsi over Coke. That's a true story. So, um, yeah, I don't know if it's related, but it's just an odd coincidence. So, anyways. So, we're, we're in the book of First Peter. If you've never been here before, this is all we do. We go through whole books of the Bible, line by line, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we get through with them. Um, this is a short one. It's a letter written from Peter to, to a group of churches in what we would call modern-day Turkey. Biblically, they would call it Asia Minor. And it was written during a time about 62 to 64 AD when there was persecution was really starting to ramp up uh, uh, against Christians in the Roman Empire. And we'll get into that a little bit uh, today. We'll get into that quite a bit, actually, today. Um, but it's interesting reading this book of the Bible because we have never really experienced physical persecution in the Western world, but we are, we are starting to see the genesis of this. And so reading this book of the Bible that's now 2,000 years old, it, 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 it is becoming more and more relevant to us in the Western world. I mean, persecution of Christians has always been going on, but, but we have never really had to experience that. But we are starting, again, to see some of these things uh, materialize. And so as we go through this book of the Bible, um, and there's some parts I highlighted today. I, I've learned as I get older, I highlight more of my Bible. I don't know if it's because I'm more spiritual, but because my memory's not as good. So I highlight certain things. And there were some parts that really stuck out to me that, that, I'll, that I'll show you here in a second. Last week, though, what we talked about was this. We were in chapter three, and the Bible calls us to radically love people, radically love people. And in chapter three, there are three different demographics of people that Peter tells us that we are to love. The first one is our spouse, right? Which should seem like a no-brainer, but we don't always treat our spouses the way we should. And it says that we're supposed to treat our spouse with gentleness and love and respect. And then Peter goes into how we're to treat virtually all people. That means both other Christians and non-Christians that we're to also treat them with gentleness, love, respect, patience, these things. And then he gets into the hard demographic. And those are people who would be hostile towards us. That, that the Bible, Jesus in particular, even calls us to pray for those that persecute us, for love, to, to love those that hate us. And that's difficult, guys, if we're just being honest, but that's what we are called as believers in Christ to do. So that's what we talked about last week. This week, and, and I, I hope this doesn't ruin anyone's morning or, or put you in a, in a bad disposition, but we're gonna talk about some pretty heavy stuff today, some pretty serious stuff. And I think, um, I think the Bible has us at this juncture uh, because we need this. But what we're gonna talk about today is there are two fires 
in every single one of us in this room, everyone you know, every human, will be involved in one of these two fires. The first fire is the refining fire of God, which is a good thing. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult to go through the refining fire of God. And we'll talk about what that is today so we all understand what that means. But we choose to go through the refining fire of God. And if we choose to go through the refining fire of God, the first fire, we will escape the second fire, and that is the fire of God's wrath. But every single one of us will face one of two fires, the refining fire of God or the fire of God's judgment. And we don't want to face that one, okay? So that's what we're going to talk about today. It's very, very serious. And um, again, in this day and age, in this culture, uh, we need to have some serious talk because some serious problematic things are happening right now in society, and, and we need to address these things. So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm going to say will be in there. Everything will be on the screens around the room. If you have the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes, and you got everything right there, all the scripture and uh, all the notes. If you have a Bible, right after the book of James, I always check like they shift around when I'm not looking or something. It's still after the book of James. Um, you'll have the book of 1 Peter. We'll, we'll do this. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll move on to 2 Peter. That's a very, very short letter. And then we'll move on to the book of Esther because um, I got your back, ladies. And so uh, we'll do that one. That'll be fun. So I'm gonna pray. We'll read a little bit. We'll go through this relatively quick and um, give you the opportunity to kind of respond at the end. Okay, good to see you this morning. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I love this church. I pray that you bless this church this morning. I pray that us as individuals, God, that you keep your hand on us. Bless us, Lord. Um, Father, we don't just pray for our church. We, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. We pray that everything we do this morning, that it is a blessing to you, that it's a blessing to your kingdom, God, that it honors you. And of course, again, Lord, we pray that, that as we honor you, that, that you honor us as well, God, and, and keep your hand on us, Lord. We love you. We live in a very confusing dark time. And Father, uh, no, more, no more in my lifetime than, than in the present do we need to be the light. And so I pray that you give us the ability to be so and to, and to do so, God. So we love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit. I'll go back and I'll do my best to, to kind of break it down. And I'll, I'll tell you which part I highlighted because I think it is pretty, pretty profound. Peter writes this, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, non-believers, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. This is what I highlighted. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they may live in the spirit according to God's standards. Okay, so if you weren't here last week, there's kind of a pivotal scripture in chapter 
3. Um, chapter 3, verse 13 sets up basically chapter 4 and 5, which is almost exclusively about persecution. Peter asks the question, who would do harm to those who are doing good? Who would hurt those who are devoted to good? Well, the answer to that is evil people. Evil people will harm people simply because they are doing righteous things and stand up for righteous things. And we know this because Jesus was crucified, not because he committed any crimes or hurt anyone, but because he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. In a similar manner, we as Christians, if we are living by the word of God, living by what Jesus wants us to do, we will suffer some kind of persecution. So Peter says we have to have this understanding going into it, right? If you ever go to a church and they're like, man, being a Christian is always fun, it's prosperous and everything's good, reach back, make sure your wallet is still there because that's probably what they're after, right? And they have not read their Bibles very well because it is not always easy. It's not always just fun and games and laughing. It's a difficult lifestyle. It's a good one, but we have to have the understanding that Christ had when he started his mission that, that we're gonna suffer for this. So another thing we have to kind of come to a conclusion on is we have to decide which path we're on, which means if we're gonna pursue Christ, it means we're finished with sin. Now, finished with sin does not mean that we are perfect. You're not gonna be perfect until we're all in heaven. But what it means to be finished with sin is, is that we don't want to intentionally do things that the Bible tells us not to do anymore. I am choosing to live the way God wants me to live. So if I read this book, and it tells me that certain actions or thoughts or, or ways of living is incorrect. Well, I am done with pursuing my desires and what I want. I'm done with materialism and greed and my lust and, and all, you know, my anger. I'm done with those things and I'm gonna pursue the ways of Christ. So when we, when we step into a relationship with Jesus, we are denying ourselves. That's what the Bible says. But we've created this narrative in American Christianity that we think we can kind of dabble in both, right? On the weekends, I'm a saint, and on Friday night, not so much, right? But it's okay. You know, I kind of put my, you know, you know hands in both worlds, and Jesus says, you're either for me, or you're against me. There is no third option. So we either have to be in, or we have to be out, and we have to decide that. And the reason why we have to decide that is Peter says, you've already wasted enough time doing stupid things. Those of us who are saved like in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and we, we made a lot of stupid decisions, a lot of us reached that point where we're like, okay, I'm done being an idiot. I'm sick of all the bridges I've burned and the people I've hurt and I've hurt myself. And we just have to be done with it. And so what Peter says is, we have to be done. We've wasted enough time living and doing unrestrained behavior. I actually highlighted that part as well. We live in a culture right now of unrestrained behavior. There is no limitations to what we identify as or what we do or how we live or the things we think or the notions we have. And, and, and we live in, in basically this no holds barred society. And these unrestrained lifestyles, Peter kind of gives some examples of these, these lifestyles that, that not only hurt other people, they hurt you as well. And they bring God's judgment eventually. And he gives a couple of examples. He says drunkenness, which is more than just drinking alcohol. This is addiction to anything. I'm not saying drinking alcohol is a sin, but getting intoxicated is a sin. Addiction is a sin. And drunkenness kind of encapsulates all addiction, right? Whatever we lean on for comfort and enjoyment more than we lean on God. 
He also mentions orgies, which I don't want to get into all the details of what this word means, but beyond having sex with multiple people at the same time, which I guess that is me getting into what that means. Um, <laughs> this can mean any sexual deviance outside of biblical sexuality, right? And biblical sexual practice. So anything outside of one man, one woman exclusively for life, the Bible would say this, this is an orgy, right? This is sexual deviance. I do find this particular word fascinating in our culture right now because we're seeing a dramatic rise of people who believe that polyamorous relationships are okay, which means throuples and you know three, four, five, six people being in a, mar a marital relationship together. We used to kind of like make fun of the Mormons about that, and now we're like, ah, what the heck, you know, like you know, we'll join them. So like we there is this huge culture in the United States of people who just think this is okay. He said carousing. This is that word your grandpa always used, but you didn't know what it meant. <laughs> hey, don't go out carousing. You're like, oh, okay. I don't, know that, I don't know what that means, grandpa. What that means <laughs> is a lifestyle that is just all about partying. Not just intoxication, but this lifestyle of there are no ramifications for the things I do tonight. There are no ramifications. And we, again, we live in this culture, do we not? We live in this culture where we promote like life is just like this constant party. We take pictures of ourselves laughing, walking down the street by ourselves. And I'm like, isn't that a little maniacal and weird? But anyways, this is what we promote. And, and it's this constant life of no consequence. And if the first three didn't get you, the last one gets us all. Peter said it, it, it is an unrestrained life when we have idols in our life. Anything that we place in value above God and we've all done that. So the really provocative scripture though is verse four. This is what I highlighted. In the very hedonistic Roman empire, and, and again, we have not reached the, 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 the epic hedonism that Rome has reached. We're, we're very much on our way. That's why the Bible calls the last culture before he comes back a revised Rome, because it will be very similar in hedonism. But in the Roman Empire during Peter's time, they would engage in, in completely unrestrained sexual behavior and deviance and, and complete uh, uh, moral degradation. And then they would be shocked that the Christians didn't wanna do it too. Just like in our culture, right? When they find out that you don't agree with this unrestrained culture, they're like, well, why don't you agree with what we're doing? But it doesn't stop at astonishment. It always leads to slander. The culture you live in right now, it's not enough that we can just disagree on someone. We instantly resort to name calling. We live in a culture right now to where it's like the spoiled kid in Target, right? Whoever screams the loudest gets what they want. And this is the society we live in. Rationale has gone out the window, not just morality and religion and, and faith. Man, science, logic, reason, we've cast all those things aside for just unrestrained emotionalism. And this is the society we live in right now. So it's not okay just for us to disagree. I have to call you names. We can't discuss it. We can't talk about it. Corey, do you agree with this? No, I don't agree with that. Well, you're a this and you're a that and you're a this and I'm gonna scream it and I may physically hurt you, but that's okay because you're not socially accepted anyways. So I'm gonna tell you, Christian thought will always look bizarre to mainstream culture. And what begins as a surprise will always inevitably end up with the breaking down of the character of Christianity. That's what is going on in your society right now. But here's the catch to that. 
We talked about this last week, and this is where it gets muddy and difficult, right? We all amen, yes, we get treated like crap sometimes. The, the, the difference between us, though, and the world is we are to not return that kind of hostility with hostility. We are to return that with love and with gentleness and with respect. That's why Jesus said, pray for those that persecute you, love those that hate you. That's why he said these things. And here is the, the bottom line to that. Judgment of humanity is not Corey Trimble's job. That's not my job. It's not your job. I am not a righteous judge. I am unrighteous at times, right? So I am not fit to judge humanity. Jesus is though. And that's why the Bible says, vengeance is not yours. Vengeance belongs to God. He will hold all evil things into account. So why is that important to know? It's important, one, it's important for us to know that, that Jesus is gonna hold everything into account. So we do not abstain and we do not partake in, I'm sorry, that we do abstain and we do not partake in evil things. Not only that, because we have been given not only the direction of the Bible, but the gift of the Holy Spirit that leads us, we have to treat ungodly people the way Jesus would treat ungodly people because here it goes, we are going to be held account as Christians by the knowledge that we have received. To whom much is given, much is required. But Corey, they're awful. Blah, 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 blah. You have the Holy Spirit, which gives you the ability to not return evil for evil, but to return evil with grace and love and mercy. Because one day we will be held accountable as well. Listen, this is a very sobering thought. And again, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to, to, to be so heavy this morning, but every single one of us in this room, every single human that exists, one day, according to the book of Matthew, we will all stand in front of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. He will open up a book on our lives and we will have to give an account for how we have lived. All of us. Now, if we have lived this life in accordance with God's will, right? We will be made alive forever in heaven. The judge will be on our side. But even if we, have, if we have relented on our biblical teaching, if we have relented on our faith, we may escape the hardships now, but we're gonna have to face him later. So what Peter says is, though we may be judged by human standards and even killed now, if we are faithful to God's standards, don't worry, you're gonna live forever. And this is what he teaches us. But until Jesus comes back, or until we die, right? We have to be alert and aware. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. So the first thing that we, not the first thing, but one of the things that Peter mentions here is, is we have to think that there is a brevity of life, right? That there is, we are not going to live forever. He starts off with the end is near. 
Now listen, I'm not one of those crazy like apocalyptic end times, every time the moon looks a little orange, we're like, oh, he's coming back Tuesday. I'm not one of those guys. And you shouldn't be one of those people either. But let me tell you this. Every major event that the Bible says needs to happen before Jesus has come, before he comes back has happened except for one. And that is from Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus himself says, when he was asked, when are you coming back? He says, when everyone on earth has had the opportunity to hear the gospel, then the end will come. So every other major event has taken place except for this one for him to return. Now, in the world that we live in where information is so readily available, not just here, I have been on remote islands in Lake Victoria, Africa, three hours away from the mainland where people have internet access on these remote islands. So information is traveling very, very quick. But here's the thing. Even if it takes generations for Jesus to come back, even if it takes a thousand years for Jesus to come back, you're not gonna live that long. At the very best, you're gonna live to be 120 years old, but I wouldn't bank on that either because none of us are promised longevity. What this tells us is this. With the time we have, we must live intentionally. Listen, you were created too special by God to live haphazardly, to live carelessly. Your life means something. So we are to live with intentionality. We're to live on purpose. And if we're to live on purpose, one of the first things we have to do is we have to intentionally talk to God. Not just block off time to talk to God, but have somewhat of a plan when we talk to God. That we're not only to pray, we're to pray with purpose, we're to pray with intentionality. That's why Jesus said, pray like this. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer, which kind of gives us like a template for how to pray. To first honor God in our prayers, to address the sin in our life, repent when we pray to pray for other people and then to pray for our own needs. But what we have a tendency to do with prayer is we are either sporadic with prayer or we are selfish with prayer. We typically only pray when we need something. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're to be focused. We're to be sober-minded in prayer. That's what he says for prayer, that this is the way we're supposed to live. It has to be a priority if we're gonna live intentionally. Another thing we have to do if we're gonna live intentionally is we have to intentionally forgive people. We are to love people in a way that shows forgiveness and grace. This is a scripture that's taken way out of context. People say, well, you know, Corey, love covers a multitude of sins. That does not mean that God turns a blind eye to sinful actions. That is not what that means at all. The word cover there means to forgive, which means love gives us the ability to forgive other people. That doesn't mean that we justify sin or ignore sin or condone sin. Here's the thing about real love. If you're committing an act that is gonna permanently separate you from Jesus Christ in eternity, it's not very loving of me to ignore the fact that you're doing that. I need to tell you, listen, this is not good for you. This is not good for your relationship with God. So to cover all sin, yes, we forgive, but we still talk about the sinful action. We still talk about evil. We still try to correct the incorrections. So we need to make sure we don't take things out of context. The third thing we do as intentional followers of Jesus, living our life on purpose, is we are to deeply love people. This is not just your husband. This is not just your children. This is not just people that you like. This is all people. 
We are not just to love humanity, we are to have agape love. This is the one Greek word that all Christians know because everyone has that distressed piece of wood from Hobby Lobby in their kitchen, agape. See, there's my Greek, right? So like everyone knows this. <laughs> that was mean. I should I always pick on Hobby Lobby. I like Hobby Lobby. It's just too expensive for me. Anyways, so <laughs> we are to not just love people, we are to deeply love people. Now I'm gonna tell you something about deeply loving people. It hurts. It hurts to love people. If you deeply love people the way God wants you to love people, it's going to stretch you. It's gonna stretch you to your limits to where you think you're gonna break because people will let you down. People will disappoint you. People will stab you in the back. People will not appreciate you. It goes on and on and on, but that doesn't mean that we stop loving humanity. We are to always love people. Loving people is difficult, but loving people, man, I'm sure it's difficult for God to love me sometimes, but he does and he loves you too. And we are to communicate that same kind of love to all people, all people. And we demonstrate this agape love, this deep love, by not only serving humanity, right? We do a good job at this church of serving humanity. We are also to speak the gospel to people. There is no way for people to be saved unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, are we to do good things? Absolutely, we're to do good things, but we're also to speak about the truth of Jesus Christ. So we can demonstrate the love of God to people by even the most simple things like Peter mentions hospitality. Be hospitable, be kind, be gentle, invite people into your home and feed them and, 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 and do very simple, basic things like that. But then we also demonstrate our love for our people by our spiritual giftings. So yes, we feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner. Jesus told us to do, it, do that in the gospel but we are to also use the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has administered to us. So if we have the gift of, of, of faith, then we speak encouragement into people's lives and we pray for them. And if people are sick, we're to lay hands on them, Jesus said, and that the elders of the church pray for people to be healed. These are other ways to supernaturally show that we love other people. We do all these things and we put our heart on the line because we want people to be saved and changed, right? Because this is God's heart. And so the bottom line is this, you and I are to be living like Jesus is coming back because he is one day. And we have this thing in American culture, we think we're gonna live forever, right? We are in a stage of arrested development in American culture. No one wants to grow up, no one wants to, to, to recognize the fact that we are mortal, no one wants to do this. And so we are to live in, listen to this, sobriety and awareness. It's hard to live in sobriety when we're constantly intoxicated or high. So in a culture right now that is pushing, right, inebriation on you all the time, well, I medically need it. We can have that argument another day, right? Get on the CDC and see how healthy weed is for you. The CDC will tell you how bad it is for your body. Memory loss, the destruction to your lungs, on and on and on, but it's good, right? Anyways, so we can go on and on, but the bottom line is this, the Bible teaches sobriety about a half million times. That we are to be sober-minded, that was facetiousness by the way, that we are to be clear in our thought, as the next chapter says, because our adversary, the devil, walks around looking to devour us. So we have to be thinking clearly. And he says in chapter four that we need to be sober-minded and aware of our creator, not only because we love him, but because our lives will be held into account by him. 
So one day, if you're sitting in front of Christ Jesus, the creator of all things, that's what John 1 says, things were created through him, by him, for him, you're sitting in front of Jesus Christ, right? The creator of the universe. And he says, what'd you do with your life? Well, man, I smoked a lot and played a lot of video games. That's it. That's what you did with the gift of life. You were made in my image and that's it. So not only do we have to live intentionally because we're gonna be held into account for how we live, we must also love others and live intentionally for them so God can hopefully touch their heart, right? So they can hopefully change. So we live on purpose, not just for ourselves. I live on purpose for my two little girls. I live on purpose for my wife. I live on purpose for you. And I hope you live on purpose for me, right? Because there's a lot at stake and we have a tendency to forget those kinds of things. So what happens is, so we don't forget these kinds of things, God puts us through a refining fire. That's what we're gonna get to. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice when, uh, with great joy when his glory is revealed, when he comes back. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. For if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. If you weren't with me for the beginning of 1 Peter, I talked a little bit about Caesar Nero and where we get the term Roman candle from. The term Roman candle came from what Peter is talking about right here. Caesar Nero would take Christians as they were alive, strap them to huge wooden posts, dip them in tar or pour tar over them, light them on fire and put them throughout his garden. He would call them Roman candlesticks. So when Peter uses this, this, this verbiage, this fiery ordeal, this would have been um, eerily disturbing to the recipients of this because the recipients of this letter, they might be set on fire and put in Nero's garden. They may be exiled, they may be killed for their faith, they may be ridiculed, right? They may be imprisoned. So that word fiery was probably like, ooh, that is a very sobering, heavy word. And so here's the thing. We are not to be surprised that Christians go through persecution. We should not be surprised by this, but we should always be disturbed by this. Again, persecution has always happened. We're just starting to see a little bit in the Western world, but it has been going on forever. If you walk around town, if you go to many places here in town, um, there's a lot of Egyptians in Murfreesboro. A lot of people don't know that. And if you talk to these people from Egypt and you ask them, are you Coptic? The majority of them will say, yes, we're Coptic. And the reason why they ended up in the United States is because they are fleeing heavy persecution in Egypt. They are getting killed still today in Egypt because of their faith. And this should disturb us. 
It shouldn't surprise us because people will always die for Jesus's name, but it should bother us. Here's the other side of it though. We have to be careful that long-term astonishment of evil doesn't become bitterness in the heart of a Christian. There's a lot of us in here, guys, if we're just being honest. We see how ugly the world gets. We see how lost the world is. We see how some of the things they say are just absolutely insane. And we have given up on, again, I said even logic and reason and science, let alone morality and, and spirituality. But, all, but we have to make sure that all of this doesn't build up a resentment to us. I don't know if anyone else like has these fantasies of moving to Montana and never seeing a human ever again, but if we start drifting that way, <laughs> if we start drifting that way, that's when we need to lean on God. That's when, we need, that's when we have to know that God is in control and that we can depend on him. We also need to know as Christians, we're not called to isolate from the world. We are called to be engaged in the world. And so what tends to happen, brothers and sisters, is we sit back as conservative Christians, I don't mean conservative in a Republican manner, I'm talking about morals, that we sit back as conservative Christians and we say, how in the world get to be how it is? The reason why we have such a messed up culture right now is we have isolated ourselves and we have not engaged in culture. The reason why it's so dark is that the light has not penetrated the darkness. That's not God's fault. You know whose fault it is? Whenever a group of spirit-filled Christians sits back and go, how did it get so bad? God goes, you. Because we isolated ourselves and didn't do our jobs as sheep among wolves. And we wonder why there's so many wolves running around. So here's the thing, we're to not shy away from suffering. This is again, that refining fire we're gonna talk about. Peter says we're actually to rejoice in suffering. When we suffer for biblical principles, we actually identify with Jesus because he suffered with righteousness. When we suffer with right, with, with, uh, for righteousness, it identifies us with him. It makes us more reliant on him. During persecution, if we will pray and read the word of God, we learn to not only trust God, we learn to appreciate more what he did for us. I imagine as Peter was being crucified, he was crucified upside down. I imagine as Peter was being crucified, he probably never had quite the appreciation for the cross he did until he was also nailed to a cross. Father, forgive me so much. For, forgive me, God, that I never appreciated. Now I understand the pain you went through for me, right? Because persecution helps us understand more clearly what Christ, he suffered for me. I should find it a joy to suffer for him. But listen, not all suffering should be celebrated and not all suffering is because God is in there with you in that suffering. Sometimes suffering is our fault. It's because we do stupid things. It's either we live incorrectly or it's because we, we are doing things that are sinful or we're making foolish choices. So Peter says, don't find joy in suffering because you're a murderer. And if you're quick to say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Jesus said, well, if you've ever hated anyone, it's the same thing in his eyes. If we've been thieves, if we have done evil things, if we have been meddlers, I love this one. These are people who just can't stay out of other people's business. These are people who always have to insert themselves in everyone's lives. These are gossipers. These are busybodies. These are people that don't know how to stay in their own lane. And what Peter is saying is when you do these things and you suffer, like God, you know, you know how people, people are just kind of like, man, 
financially, God's just, man, he's testing me right now. I'm just suffering financially. And I'm like, no, you don't have a job and you buy everything that you look at. That's not God. That's not the devil. That's you. You're the problem in this equation. Don't think that you're a martyr or a victim, but that's what we do in our society. Every time we go through something bad, we're like, man, it's the devil. Oh, it's, it's so-and-so. It's Donald Trump's fault. It's Joe Biden's fault, right? It's my pastor's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's your fault. Everyone but me, because we live in a society that takes no personal responsibility. Amen. And sometimes the ditch we're in is because we walked into it because we did stupid things. Going back to the meddling, people are like, well, I don't know why no one likes me. Because you treat everyone terribly and get into their business and say bad things about, that's why you have no friends. It's not the devil, it's you, right? No one likes you. <laughs> and if you stop acting like that, you'd have friends. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have gone there. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we are to suffer for the truth. So here's the thing. The people who are reading this letter, these were people who were suffering for, for their faith. These are people who could die. They could be imprisoned. Their kids could be taken from them. They could be hurt for their faith. And at the very least, they were exiles. They were being marginalized for their faith, which leads us to believe, guys, if you stand firm on this word, listen to me, you're going to be marginalized. If you get into like 1 Corinthians chapter six and you say, I believe every single word of the word of God and you get into a chapter that says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God and it gives us a list, right? If someone asks you, if you agree with me on this and you say, I don't because of the word, you're gonna be marginalized. Let me also say this. If you have never been marginalized by, for your faith, you may, you may reevaluate and see if your faith is evident. If you have never been marginalized, and never, been, and never received pushback for your beliefs, maybe they don't know what your beliefs are. And that's a problem, that's a problem. There will always be a marginalization. This is why Jesus said, I didn't come to unite everyone, I came to divide actually, the division between what is right and wrong. And this division will even cut through families, it will cut through friendships, it will cut through all kinds of relationships. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword, right? To draw a defining line. So here's where it gets serious. This suffering or this persecution that God allows us to go through through our life is a refining fire. Several times the New Testament talks about this refining fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit, this fire that purifies. And again, I said this a couple of weeks ago, it's like if you take raw gold that was just mined, right? You put it into a vat, you heat it up to a certain temperature, the impurities rise to the surface. The, the, the metallurgist, the one that is doing this, right, the craftsman, removes the impurities from the gold, so now you're left with something pure. And not only that, when it's pulled out, it is, it is buffed out to, to resemble the craftsman so they can see their reflection in what they've done. This is what God is doing through us when we go through the refiner's fire. We gain empathy for people. We gain a stronger relationship with God. We, we, we gain a, a stronger understanding of what Christ has gone through for us. And if we lean into, and listen, if we're willing to go through that refining fire, not only will we be saved, we will be changed. We will be used by God. The Bible says sanctified, which means we are set apart for God to use us. But 
if we despise that refining fire. Let me tell you what that means. We're talking in practical terms. Suffering right now in American culture is a social thing. We're not being physically hurt yet. We're being socially ostracized. So what this means is in this life right now, if we stand by the teachings of the word of God, it's gonna be difficult. You're gonna lose friends. You may even lose family. You're gonna be in tough situations. You may be physically hurt, right? And so the temptation that we have right now in our life because of society is that if we stand on certain principles, we're gonna be called names, we're gonna be unpopular, people are gonna say bad things about us. So where our temptation is, we say, well, I just won't say those things and I will avoid this fire. The problem is, if we deny the refining fire of God because we stand by the truth, we will inevitably face a different fire and that is the fire of God's judgment. You wanna know why? Because Jesus said, if you deny me on earth, I will deny you in heaven. If you compromise your beliefs now, your eternity will be compromised. Forever will be compromised. So what we have to do, if we are to get into the refining fire, if we are going to suffer for God's will, we have to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. We have to understand that the God that created the universe is on your side, that he knows where you sit right now, that though this life may be very, very difficult, that if we go through the refining fire now, there will be an eternal reward for us. And we live in a culture that is very myopic. That means we can only see what's right in front of our face. We live in a culture right now that doesn't think about what happens tomorrow. We live and we eat and drink for tomorrow we die is what the Bible says and we're not supposed to live like that. And that we are very haphazard with our lives, not thinking about consequences. But if we live devoted to the word of God, devoted to, 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 to a relationship with Christ, though this life may be more difficult, we will have an eternity. And again, in our myopic culture, we just think about, the Bible says we live by our stomachs. Whatever hunger we have right now in the moment, we feed it without thinking what that's going to do long-term. And there's a lot of people who keep feeding their emotionalism, feeding their lust, feeding their greed, feeding their, their apathy, feeding whatever that drives them, not thinking that this is going to have an eternal ramification. That's extremely foolish, extremely foolish. So you and I, we live in, a, in, in, we have in the United States a culture that is more vile than any culture on planet earth. I'll go toe to toe with you on that statement. There is no country on planet earth that is as vile and hedonistic and unrestrained as American culture right now. It doesn't exist. It's ironic that we call ourselves a nation under God and we, no one puts out the vitriolic, gross, disgusting stuff like the United States does. Nobody. We live in a culture of unrestraint. We also live in a culture of willing ignorance to consequence. We believe there is no consequence. And this is not how you are to live. This is not how the Christian is to live. We are to know that there are consequences for our actions. We are to understand that you and I are not promised tomorrow. I don't know if I said it earlier on, I've, this is my fourth lesson this weekend, but in 2017, I did, set, I did 17 funerals in 2017. Only one of those funerals was for someone over the age of 40. 17, 
Only one of them was for someone over the age of 40. And I'm sure all these people thought they were going to live longer. But Jesus said, you're not promised tomorrow. So you better live intentionally today. We must live devoted lives today because one day our time will run out. Either Christ will split the Eastern sky and come back for us or we will die. All of us will die. And we will be held accountable for how we have lived. There's a price to pay. And there's also a reward to be earned by how we live. And listen, if we're being honest today, it is easy to slide backwards. What happens is we start to falter whenever we stop trusting God, when times get hard and, 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 and culture gets chaotic and craziness kind of abounds and there is hostility and there is aggression, we tend to falter when we're not constantly leaning on God when we're not consistently praying, when we're not consistently reading the word of God, when we're not consistently in community, we start to slip, don't we? I know I do. I'll let you in on what it means to be a pastor. I can get so busy doing church work that I forget to pray and read my Bible. That's, that's real for me because there's always a fire to put out, right? All of us have this in our lives. There's always a fire to put out. But we have got to intentionally be in the word of God, be praying, be with other Christians, because when we're not, not only do we start to slip, people around us start to slip and the kingdom of God doesn't advance. And this goes back to the statement I said earlier. Then we sit back, listen, we're just gonna talk. We have to own some responsibility too, Christians. We sit back in the most free, prosperous nation that has ever existed. And we started thinking 30, 40 years ago that being a Christian meant you go to church and nothing else. And we sit back and look at the horror that is American culture. And we go, how did this happen? It happened because we didn't raise our children to fear and love the Lord. We just told them if you clock in once a week, you're good. You say a prayer one time at camp, you're good. Doesn't matter how you live. Doesn't matter what you do with your time. And none of that's biblical. And then we sit back and we engage in violence and we engage in hatred and we engage in misogyny and we, we stop reading the word of God so a lot of Christians don't even know what to believe anymore. And we sit back and we see all these evil things happening. How did we get here? We're why we're here. We are the light of the world. What does Jesus even say? You are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt is not present, how does the world have flavor? That means that we are meant to go out like sheep among wolves. And when we are not connected to God, we are not properly connected to others. And when we're not properly connected to the others, the kingdom of God doesn't advance and it all goes to hell. We need to own some of this. We need to own some of this. I cannot blame a world that doesn't know the truth for them not living by the truth. I do know the truth and it is my job to share such truth. I've got to own that. I've got to own that. So here's the thing. We're all going to face a fire. You want to talk about truth. This is a hard truth. I stand up on the stage in front of 5,000 plus people every single weekend, right? People from all walks of life. And if you think it's easy to stand on this stage and say that one of you, or, or I'm sorry, all of you will face one of two eternities, one of eternal uh, uh, paradise with God or one of eternal damnation, hellfire. You think that's easy. It's not but we are in a society right now that foolishly evades any conversation, not only of consequence, but of responsibility. 
We evade all conversation of responsibility. I'm gonna tell you what, if you think the things we're doing right now are having damning consequences, wait for about a decade when we really start to see the fruit of the seeds we're sowing right now. What we're doing to our children, what we're teaching them, what we're allowing science to do to them, all boy, you're gonna see some ridiculously gross ramifications in about a decade. You're gonna see some, some really destructive things happen. But when we evade the conversation of consequence, when we evade the conversation of responsibility, no wonder we have chaos now. And I'm telling you, it's gonna, it's gonna end up catastrophically in the future and very catastrophic in eternity. You're all gonna face a fire. The choice is this, will I go through a temporary, listen, temporary, will I go through a temporary hardship, suffering, and refinement in this life that actually makes me better, draws me closer to God, will help my marriage, my kids, everything? Will I go through that hardship right now, that fire? Or will I face the eternal fire of God's judgment where at that point it is too late? Will I live intentionally now so I can be rewarded later? Look how simple this is. Or will I live carelessly now and be held into account for eternity? But this is what we are faced with. This is what we are faced with this morning. The bottom line is this. God does not want any of you to face his wrath. The next book we're gonna study says this. It is not God's desire that any of you face the fires of hell. It is not God's desire. God did not create you to damn you. God did not send his only son to die on a cross while you were a sinner for you to go to hell. That is not his desire. God loves you. God wants the best for you. This is why he wants to refine us. This is why he wants to put us through a process now so we will be prepared to live with our righteous savior forever. And though standing on Jesus and his principles and his word is difficult, I guarantee you it'll be the best thing you ever did. But we have to have faith. We have to put our trust. We have to be entrusted to a faithful creator. Let me tell you what that means. I don't know if you guys have looked at, uh, my, my friend Jason sitting up here at the front sent me some of these pictures. I, I, I had seen some of these are beautiful of all the images from the James Webb telescope. I mean, amazing, beautiful pictures. And from a distance, it just looks like little, little beams of light. When you zoom in on those pictures, those are whole galaxies and solar systems. You're talking solar systems, most of them with stars bigger than our sun. Our sun is actually a very small star. And these galaxies and solar systems that are much bigger than ours. And you're looking at an image that has hundreds of them. That, is, that blows your mind to think that the universe is so large, so big. Now listen to this. The creator of that universe that spoke that universe into existence, that spoke our planet into existence and the atmosphere that sustains us and the star that keeps us alive, all of these things, that God that created all those things, you are the only thing God ever created that looks like him. Meditate on that for a moment. Not only are you the only thing in existence in the universe that looks like God, you are the only thing that contains the breath of God in you, a soul. You are unique to everything ever created. You are, listen to me, the masterpiece of God. The reason I say all that is we have to understand that if God would make us in his image, breathe his life into us, 
He has to be faithful. Would he do all that just to leave us hanging? That's absurd. Would he send his son to die on the cross when we were at our worst so we wouldn't have the tools to make it, so we wouldn't have the ability to be saved and changed and to live with him forever? That's absurd. It's illogical. So logically speaking, this refining fire we go through is because God is a faithful creator that is trying to prepare his bride, that's us, to be married with him in heaven forever. We either accept that fire or inevitably we face a different fire. This is the truth. Is it a hard truth? Maybe the hardest truth. I sat with my wife last night and, and I'm not crying the blues or anything. I love what I do. There hasn't been a weekend in 13 years where I haven't been sick to my stomach before I start teaching. Because there is this, this, this question in myself, like, have I prepared enough? Have I done enough? Am I living well enough? Am I, God, who am I to get up here and say these things, right? Every, every weekend for, for 13 years, I've done that. Every, every service, every weekend, I do that. The, the, the weight of what I'm doing, I, I very much feel it all the time. And my wife said something beautiful to me last night. She said, Corey, if this was the last message you ever taught, it may be the most important that we either have to accept the refining, loving fire of God or there's a consequence. I don't know of anything more important that I can tell you. I just hope that you hear it and I hope it resonates with you because I love you. Would, you. would you bow your heads with me, please? Thank you. If you are in this room and, and maybe you do not have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you're a new Christian and you're just kind of like, I don't, I don't know what to do next. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Carl is up here. He does all of our life groups. If you would like to talk with Carl, his whole thing is discipleship. He'd love to talk with you. He'd love to get you plugged in. He'd love to meet with you, whatever the case may be. And any questions you might have, please come talk to him. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, it can be for you, for your family, for your kids, for, for whatever. It, it can be for financial issues or, or addiction. It doesn't matter. Please let someone pray with you. Then the last thing is all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, and if you're sitting in the middle, there's actually baskets if you'd rather skip the line and get the, the disposable communion. There's communion all the way around you. Everyone is welcome to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ if we have asked God to forgive us of our sins. Now, I wanna just one more time as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to think on something if you take communion today. Why would a loving creator send his only son to die for people who may not even care? Why would he do that and resurrect and give us access to his Holy Spirit? Why would he do that if he wanted you to fail? He doesn't. It is not God's will that any of you be separated from him. It is not God's will that any of you perish. It is not God's will that any of you see his wrath or judgment. He does not want that for you. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you. Thank you so much for this church. God, I love these people. I pray, Father, that we don't just hear these words. I pray that we, we ingest them and, and let, them, let them take root in us. I pray that we don't just hear it, that we do it, God.
that we respond. Lord, we love you. Give us strength. Give us, give us more of your Holy Spirit, God. Lord, we welcome that refining fire if it brings us closer to you, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.